Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Tyranny Today. Ukraine, Russia, China, Taiwan. We're adding a new name, Iran and beyond. Tyranny Today, Ukraine, Russia, China, Taiwan, Iran, and beyond. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Let's get Thomas in here uh, to see if he might have anything to say about some recent developments. Like a speech uh, by Mr. Putin uh, involving mass mobilization, uh, protests in Iran, an interesting statement by the president of the United States about Taiwan. It's just, so I have to tell you this funny story while Thomas is coming on here. Every Monday, hey, welcome, Thomas. Every Monday or Tuesday, Thomas sends me an email and says, here's what we should talk about this week. And then, you know, sometimes like this week, we're not going to get to that stuff because so much has happened in the last 24 and 48 hours, including, by the way, somebody here is having a birthday today. Well, it's just you and I, Thomas, and it's not me. <clears throat> so it must be you. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. I, I cannot say thank you to Vladimir Vladimirovich for what he did early this morning, but no, it's a, it's a happenstance. I think it was no gift for anyone but himself. I'm a happy stance, maybe. Did you, are you wearing anything you want to share with us? Oh, yes. Special, special shirt. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to come back to vestimenta. Oh, yeah, we're not we're talking much, so we'll come back to later. Birthday. All right. Well, happy birthday. Okay. Um, I think we have to talk about what's happened in the last 24 and 48 hours. Do you want to start by talking about uh, the president, President Biden, and his comment about... Yeah, uh, we'll, 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 we'll speak of, of course at length about Putin's decision and what has led to this decision and so on later in the show. But just very briefly, Biden yesterday for the fourth time uh, specified that uh, U.S. troops uh, would defend Taiwan in case of a contingency, right? So we spoke about it here before, um, you know, referring to the strategic ambiguity as it is known uh, since 1979, the Taiwan Relations Act. And um, this strategic ambiguity has been undermined uh, gradually in a very astute way by the U.S. executive branch. So strategic ambiguity was always, okay, if China attacks Taiwan, they cannot know if we do something or we don't do. Um, because the Taiwan Relations Act is a little, is a little vague about it. So we yes. provide weapons for Taiwan to defend itself. It's not written anywhere that um, U.S. Uh, servicemen and service women would come directly to to its succor. So does, this is, does the act forbid? Our no, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. It's just, it just sufficiently vaguely um, structured. And so China always, for you know, the last forty odd years, had to just keep guessing what 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 happens potentially. So now Biden, four times in a row, saying that. And this question and this interview was very clearly stated, you know, whether it means engagement of, of U.S. personnel. And he says, yes, this is the fourth time he says that. And of course, each time you have, um, you know, White House people walking back saying, no, no, there is no change in our policy, one China policy or whatever. Yes. Um, and this is very interesting. Of course, the fourth time is not a lapsus, right? It's not, yes. it's not sudden dementia. <laughs> And what it does, it actually generates problem for China because China now has to guess a second derivative. There's this, you have ambiguity about ambiguity. 
All right. If, if Biden said this and, you know, U.S. Congress changes policy, there is no ambiguity. It's pretty obvious. And guess, you know, China would have to decide what to do. Right now, right. China is in a bind. They, of course, they're going to say the usual thing, you know, Mei Fang, Bi Zhang, where it said, Fu Chu, Yan Zhong Dai Jia, you know, U.S. will pay a high price for this or whatever, something like this. I mean, always very pleasant to to listen to the barking of the wolf warriors. Um, however, um, as I said, they're in a bind. It's not clear what this policy is. Um, of course, you can, you know, always twist it around, says that maybe the Defense Department or the establishment, military establishment is against what uh, Biden is saying and therefore, you know, trying to pull back and so on. Not for the fourth time, right? So this is creating additional fog um, very useful now, whether it's in the interest of China to accelerate the conflict, whether it's in the interest of the United States to accelerate the conflict, um, that might, that calculus might also change on either side, not least because of developments in Ukraine, right? So it's a, it's, it, it's something to, to keep in mind, but I think it's a very, very important statement that we heard from the president yesterday. You know, it's interesting. There are some in the U S media who are pointing this to to what he's the, the four times as you've said he makes a statement the White House wants it back. There are some in the media who are suggesting that it, what it actually implies is that Biden is either senile or he's actually not in charge. And and so I think it's interesting what you're really saying is no, it's the strategy and it's and a very effective strategy as well. By adding this commentary, especially from sort of editorial side, we add further layer of ambiguity. Yes. Right? I don't so, think Fox, Fox News is not doing it to aid the Biden no, administration. No, it's very, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, Fox News is going to shut down whatever the Democratic president yeah, does. Exactly. We don't have to deal with the party politics in this country. Because if you, you know, take away Tucker Carlson and his, you know, support for Vladimir Putin, the political class in this country is pretty clear. Uh, when it comes to China and Russia as well, right? right. So there is no there there is no disagreement there. There might be disagreement in terms of means and and ways and so on, but not in terms of the overall strategy. Yeah, of, you know, increase deterrence against China because deterrence didn't work against Russia, right? Russia invaded, so that 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 is something that you know is is definitely served as a wake up call for all of us. Unfortunately, it also opened a Pandora's box around the world for a number of different conflicts that are currently happening, not least on the periphery of the former Soviet Union, of which they see two currently uh, happening. One is Armenia-Azerbaijan that, that flared up. The other one is Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Uh, the third one, there were demonstrations in Moldova, most likely stirred by, you know, Moscow interests. And of course, there is the opposition's referendum in Georgia um, yeah. targeting the retaking of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So, USSR is burning, as the clash would have probably uh, sung today, rather than back in 1980. Um, 79, was it? London burning? Whatever. Probably, maybe even 81. Not No. Okay. Whatever. So, you know, that's, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Anyway, I, I, um, I think it's a, it's a premeditated increase in the depth of ambiguity. Um, yeah. So that China... Um, might be forced to just recalculate its options. Mm -hmm. All right. So Iran. 
Iran. We haven't spoken about Iran here on this on this show. Uh, you must have heard of the of of, of the tragic death of uh, of an Iranian woman uh, who was um, detained by Gashkad um, al-Shad, which is a morality police. Um, many, well, several Muslim countries have this kind of religious police deployed. Afghanistan has it, and of course the ISIS areas have it, but even Malaysia has it, Sudan has it, Iran has its own. Um, maybe I'll step back why, why I feel myself being uh, somewhat legitimate in my statements about Iran. So first I know the country, I've been there. I, um, I had discussions with multiple mullahs about the uh, ideology and theology. Um, I learned some Farsi, um, you know, I, the, the area is not unknown to me. So, so just, just stepping back a little bit from this. But oh, let me, let me, let me just, I think what you probably meant to say was the area and the culture is not unknown to you. Yes. Not, ge not just geographic, but the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Not to the, not to the level that I'm familiar with, say Russia and China, but I can certainly say one or two things, um, about this event specifically. So Iran has an interesting system. Um, it's a system which is quasi-democratic. So you have elections to Majlis, which is the parliament. Um, the president is elected, as well as one of the bodies called the Assembly of Experts. The Assembly of Experts, about 87 clerics, and they're proposed from different, different provinces. They are there because the current Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, is not a, he's not a, uh, ultimate Ayatollah, the, 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 like, like Khomeini was. So he needs those, those jurists around him to take the decision within a, the, the system, which is called Balayat e Fatik. Um, and Supreme Leader is Vadi e Fatik. Um, and that system is a system of checks and balances, very complex because these uh, candidates are actually vetted by another group of jurists, 12 jurists called the Guardian Council. So you have a system which is partly elected, partly appointed. And then the Garden Council also has to vet the decisions of the parliament of Majlis, whether it's compatible with the with the uh, Islamic law. It's an Islamic republic. Right. Um, and if there are any conflicts between Guardian Council and 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 the parliament, then there is another body called the Spidiosy Council that will de de determine who, you know, who who's right, who's wrong. So did you ever study Copernicus by any chance? Because uh, oh, Ptolemy is more interesting than that, actually. <laughs> or was it Ptolemy? The circles yeah. and the circles and the was that right. Copernicus or Ptolemy? Well, both. Just okay. The, the, only the second one was heliocentric, right? So we are living in a heliocentric system yeah. here, at Copernicus. Anyway, um, so that police, Gashter Shad, is one of many elements belonging to this system, and it consists in basically policing. Mostly women's dress, but also men's dress. My experience in Iran is that it varies enormously uh, at a regional level. So if you're in Tehran, you see a lot of women with, you know, hair coming out from hijabs and from the headscarf. On top of the headscarf, women in Iran have to wear the traditional chador, the black sort of cloth yeah. on top. I actually have one at home. Um, maybe next time I'll show you uh, how it looks. And so that's that's Iranian proper. And so um we don't know if she was uh, arrested because the hijab revealed too much of her hair or if there was a problem of chador not properly put on top of her body. 
Um, anyway, there are also women in that police and, you know, cities such as Qom or Khomeini is from are very strict. Also for men, by the way. By the way, if you go to that country, you have to be very careful about what kind of shirts you're wearing and what kind of, you know, baseball caps, what's on it, what's not on it, ideally nothing, right? So it's very, it's, it's very troubling for, for women who, you know, wear a lot of jewelry. So I just show you the size of Iranian jewelry, right? If you're wearing this, okay, how are you going to show it? Well, you only show it in a, within a household, right? Because otherwise yeah. you're with each other. And so um, that, that police uh, is, you know, sort of empowered to detain people. And unfortunately, this woman died of um, cerebral hemorrhage. And that triggered a lot of young people, a lot of men, young women uh, demonstrating. Now, these demonstrations are, as usual, limited to the cities. So Tehran and Mashhad. Mashhad is a city in the northeast of the country, a significant um, uh, Islamic shrine uh, is located there. Uh, so it's important because unlike Tehran, there is this you know religious element there. It's a little more, uh, more prominent. Tehran is just a huge sprawling capital. And so right now we don't know how it will go. The, the authorities claim that she had problems before, you know, fainted in a couple of times, you know, some, some health issues. Uh, but I think the, let's, let's explain. She was 22. Yeah. She was not, and, and her family said she was healthy and had no prior health yeah, history. Exactly. So it was not, it's not like she was a 50 or 60 year old woman or even a 40 year old right. woman. She's 22. Young, we don't know what happened, what happened in detention. I, you know, young people are not waiting for, you know, the final word from the, uh, from the authorities. Um, it, the fact of the matter is, um, it just shows the tension, uh, especially yeah. on young urban, uh, Persians or, you know, other Iranian, uh, uh, minorities. Let's remember it's a multinational country, right? Yeah. So you have a lot of Azeris there, which is part of the reason why there is a little bit of tension right now because of the Azerbaijan-Armenia uh, war uh, taking place again. Um, many more Azeris live in uh, Iran than in Azerbaijan proper, right? So uh, it's not in Iran's interest that Azerbaijan comes under so such a strong Turkish influence since basically 2020 um, when Azerbaijan uh, and uh, Armenia resumed their fight over, over nagorno Karabakh. Um, so, um, you know, this is an open issue right now, how it will turn. The last wave of similar disturbances Iran go back to 2017. And of course, in 2009, there was the Green Revolution, which failed. Uh, the current president, uh, Ramsey, who was at Shanghai Cooperation or Organization meeting in, in Samarkand, is considered a conservative. Um, so there is a bit of an alternance between more conservative and more um, liberal uh, presidents, but unfortunately, whole process of you know nuclear uh, disarmament and the nuclear program, civilian, non-civilian, and and just the dynamic of that process in negotiations with European powers and, and U.S. That's what determines very often Iranian um, domestic politics and and this cruise being kind of tightened. Um, so I don't think this is the case of this event. This is sort of completely out of the left field. And we'll see what it takes for for this uh, opposition to um, to subside. You might have seen that many women basically saying no more hijab. Yes. Uh, they're cutting their hair. They're showing themselves without hair on social media. Um, 
you know, my experience is really, honestly, many, many towns, uh, they playing with fire with this. So there's a lot of hair that you can see outside of, you know, those very religious places like home, where even men have to be very careful how they dress. Um, the, you know, women show a lot more many Arabic countries, and this is not an Arab culture, right? Well, and it's actually, it's actually the reverse of, I think, in the West, what we culturally think of the city as being more liberal and pushing the envelope and the rural areas being more conservative. You're saying it's actually the reverse here. No, no, no. No, no I, think, I think it's the cities, but I'm saying regions by regions. So, you know, I found as a, as a, as a male, <laughs> the Iranian female gaze extremely coquettish, right? There's nothing else that you can see, but you yeah. can see the eyes of the beautiful eyeliners. You know, this is the, the, the style of makeup that they, that they use. Very so in Shiraz, which is the city of the most beautiful women in Iraq. If you want to see beautiful women, this is just addressing the male part of the of the audience. You know, where do you go in Argentina? You go to Rosario. Where do you go in Brazil? You go to Minas Gerais. Where do you go in China? Probably to Zhejiang, right? Or or I don't know, Daegu in Korea or Akitaken in Tohoku in Japan. If you can communicate with someone who speaks Tohoku, but in Iran is Shiraz, and you see a lot of hair. <laughs> um, but what you actually focus on, since the rest of the body is just not visible under Chador, is the eyes. This is like watching, you know, Renoir's painting when everything is fuzzy and those beautiful blue eyes in the middle. And extremely, extremely um, affecting <laughs> experience uh, for for a male. If the eyes is what you can uh, what you can see, and Iranian women eye contact, something that here in the streets of New York City you just don't do. And now right. in 1980s, you didn't do even more, but you still don't, right? Um, so, you know, uh, there is this tension between the manners, the natural sort of human tendency and the, and, and the crackdowns. And um, there is some criticism from parts of the elite that maybe that religious police, the way it's acting is not really, you know, it's, it's, it's not conducive for the survival of the regime. I'm going to ask you a question about this. Do protests like they're seeing on the streets in Iran, is there any transference to a place like Russia? I mean, do, so hear me out here, because this may be a crazy theory, hmm. but we know here in the West, you know, I, for years I worked for a men's magazine and there was a study that would come up over and over again over the years, you know, a repeat of a study. And one of the conclusions that psychologists and sociologists have come to is this sounds crazy, but that divorce is contagious. Hmm. Divorce is contagious, they believe, because someone you work with gets divorced. You see that their life doesn't end. They don't die. They survive. Maybe they even thrive. And if you're not in a happy marriage, you think, you know what? I can do it. Hmm. There, is there a similar kind of impact of if one part of the world that lives in a repressive society begins to protest, do you think that can have a carryover to another place like Russia? Does it embolden the Russians in any way? So uh, we, we saw this twice in our living memory. We saw that spreading in 1989, right? Right. Starting, you know, with, so first there was the political process in Poland, then 
Hungary, then in East Germany took, you know, form of um, demonstrations, street demonstrations. But of course, they're geographically and culturally. Czechoslovakia yeah. in yeah. Romania in a, in a dramatic right. way. All right. So that was one. The second one was Arab Spring. Yes. Arab Spring, arguably triggered by huge inflation, problems, of course, with grain. So something that's been currently very much paid attention to because, of course, the problems with the delivery of Ukrainian uh, grain to the to the region, but it started in Tunisia and spread out, you know, to Egypt and and and, and Lebanon and of course Syria with tragic consequences uh, that we see no end to. Um, so that is that is something that I would say when you have some, as you're saying, regional or cultural connectivity between those groups. You know, there was also color revolutions in the former Soviet Union, right? Starting with Georgia and then. Kyrgyzstan, of course, Orange Revolution in in Ukraine, right? So something that Putin abhorred. So so there is the connectivity, whether it's Arabic language, whether it's Russian language, whether it's something. Persia's relatively isolated. Um, you know, it used to be a massive uh, empire, right? It's a former empire. That's why we have to pay attention to it. Everybody has to pay attention to 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 Iran. When when this was a Achaemenid Empire in fifth. Uh, century be before Christ, that country, that entity contained more than half of the global population, mm. right? From Greece to India, including Egypt and Mesopotamia, all of this, this was more than half of the, it never happened again, not in the Roman empire, not in Hellenistic empire, not in the Mongol empire, not in the British empire, not in the Qing empire. This was the one, right? And so it often feels like Iranians are projecting their their interests to other groups they feel responsible mm -hmm. for, and that we always hear this about Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, about the Alawites in, in Syria, about the Shiites in Iraq, and so on, and, and Bahrain, of course, and Yemen, and, you know, the groups which are somewhat close to the 12 Shiite um, dominating group in, in Iran. Um, but, you know, beyond that, uh, these exports, I think, are fairly limited. The, the conditions in Russia today are very, very different from the conditions in Iran. And we might make a couple of linkages. You know, we know that, you know, Iranian drones are being used by the Russian army in Ukraine. They're also being shot down like ducks, you know, not particularly sophisticated uh, weaponry, something that, you know, Israel is probably very happy about. So uh, it's, it's it, I think there are limits to this. Overall, February 24th, Putin opened Pandora's box. There's no doubt about it, right? A lot of different conflicts that we're seeing, or we're seeing or appetite for conflicts. We spoke about, I think, Orban, Viktor Orban was that. Right. Um, you know, these these opportunists, they see something here as a, as a sort of, you know, with every day higher, not acceptability, but acknowledgement that, you know, this is happening really, you know, war with war crimes it's happening again this time in europe and so maybe that's the you know that's the way to to manage things in terms of demonstrations in russia we have to wait we have to see what the mass mass or partial mobilization will mean and come back to this in a second well i do want to um there's two things i want to say i know we're going to talk more about russia obviously uh one is you know <clears throat> i think your points about you know 1989 and the arab spring those all make perfect sense. And then you made the point that Iran is isolated. But you know what? It's not as isolated as it used to be because when I go on Twitter, 
I see protests. And my first reaction this morning when I saw the protests was, I thought they were in Russia. And then I read, oh, so so in a way, social media and the internet could, I guess, I, I'm asking, could it, could it actually reinvent that relationship so that protests in one part of the world where you typically wouldn't think that it, there would be an influence may actually? I, I really love what you're saying because obviously it shows that you and I were born in different places. <laughs> you'll, see, you'll see internet like we could see it in the 1990s as yeah. first of freedom, expansion, and proliferation of ideas. I see it as a perfect erector of walls. Mm. Iranians using the Chinese Great Wall, cyber Great Wall system, are capable of switching off all of these messages, mm. right? This thing can happen. It's, it's, it's very easy to, to, by using coercive system online to control information flow, and guess what? And then push a different type of information yeah. as we know from our experiences in 2016 in this country and the UK. Right. So, so I, I wouldn't go as far. I mean, yes, more information is leaking. You know, the, the, the amazing staggering pictures from Ezium, right? Where, you know, the allegations of mass, mass murder again of civilians or um, this, this amazing trove of pictures from concentration camps in Xinjiang, right? Where people are tortured. This leaked out thanks to technology. Thanks God, because we yeah. know something about it. And back in 1941, 42, 43, we didn't know about Babiar and we didn't right. know about Katyn and we barely knew about Auschwitz and so on, right? Now we know. Um, so that's, I agree with you. But I think from them to say that this is a vehicle for actually for people to, you know, unless there are systems that are very heavily encrypted, a lot of people, like, you know, top cyber end of this, is this the really broad population or can the broad population be still uh, kept in check by constant barrage of propaganda yeah, and, yeah. and indoctrination? And uh, my take on this is probably going to take a lot more real pain, physical, economic uh, pain, and physical danger uh, for things to turn around. Definitely, the COVID shutdowns in big cities in China force people to think. Yes. Right? And now the partial mobilization in Russia may also force people to think. Yeah. Well, it's, I was going to mention, you know, as we segue into Russia, um, Again, I was born in the United States. Technology to me is a window of openness, right? But there's an awful lot of people who, um, they're not in Russia, but they know Russia. Maybe they're in Ukraine or other parts of Europe who are observing that all the one-way flights in Russia are booked. Hmm. Since Putin made his speech, you cannot fly out of Russia. There's no more flights. Well, and the irony, of course, is in Ukraine at the, in, in, on February 24th, it was the women and children who were leaving. In Russia, my guess is it's the men. Yeah, I think, I think the note I, know, I found this morning is men are trying to find out if they're allowed to leave. Yes. Because that's not clear, because there's some, some secret document under that. This is what Peskov said, right? Some secret document under that speech that, that, that Putin delivered that lays out the details of this. We don't know exactly what the details are. So let's maybe, let's not just maybe recapitulate. So let's find out why this is happening, right? Yeah. And there are two 
There are actually two reasons for that. One reason is, of course, the losses on the battleground by the by the Russian army. It's no ways about it. Um, the second one is the outcome or less than ideal outcome of the Samarkand meeting, a series of meetings, because actually it's a bilateral forum more than multilateral forum. So you have one picture of everybody, but they actually pick and choose with whom to meet. So for example, you can find a picture with Xi Jinping and Modi of India standing next to each other, but they didn't meet. There was no bilateral meeting there, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, uh, so let's step back. So we spoke about, uh, you know, the Kharkiv uh, uh, breakthrough uh, by the Ukrainian army. And since then, um, slow but steady advance in, in the south, in the Kherson region. And essentially, Russia had four options to react. The first one was paralysis. What do you do next, right? Right. The second one was mobilization. The third one was to obtain support from its backers, not least China. And this is where Samarkand meeting was, was important. The fourth one was what, you know, we got used to it somewhat, but it takes a different color right now, WMDs, weapons of mass destruction. And in fact, it's not like these four are completely separate. Right. So whether your analysis is diachronics, everything happened at the same time, or synchronic one after another, I think they kind of overlap. Yes. Because in fact, it's all the four. So we had a couple of days of complete paralysis, right? The army was completely, I mean, they abandoned. Yeah, I mean, it was, actually it wasn't, it, it, there may have been paralysis, but there was act, also retreat, you know. Yeah, retreat. Yeah. I mean, what Duma signed yesterday uh, regarding insubordination, uh, surrender, um, what was that? Not demotivation, desertion. You know, all of all of these terms is because the armies yeah. don't want to fight. They're, 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 react, they're react, run away. They were running yeah. away, right? Yes. And so, so this was a shock and led to paralysis. So now, of course, they got over this initial period, and we're down to the next three. Um, so. First, let me just address the, you know, the elephant in the room, which is the partial mobilization. We actually don't know what it means because reserves, the reserves that Russia had about 60,000 troops at the beginning of the year, they were all thrown into the battle late, late February, right? Reserves, uh, professionals, Wagner Group, Kaderovce, and some soldiers of fortune. Um, so... Uh, very little conscription, but there was some, right? Partial. Now, they're, 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 those reserves were gone. They're gone. I mean, Russians lost about 80,000 troops between deaths and severe injury. So so you have to replace them. They're speaking about 300,000 reservists. Why did they need a new legislation? Because, of course, the rubber stamp Duma will come and, and sign off on this. Why do they need a new legislation for that? You don't need it for reserves. You actually need it for conscripts. And you need the referenda, which we spoke last time, it will be thrown into um, um, November, but now they're accelerated starting at the end of this week, the sham referendums, um, because, of course, time is running out because Ukraine is taking, you know, the, the territory. So they have to accelerate this process. And so once they actually uh, vote to join Russia, then you can legally deploy conscripts into this area rather than to... A, you know, part of the country that's being, 
invaded through a special does, does the law matter? Sorry? Does the law matter? Yeah, it does matter. It does matter because so far, remember, one of the objectives inside the country was to make sure that this special operation doesn't affect too many people. And so that's where the pirouette of the central banking, uh, you know, um, chairwoman, um, you know, the preparation, long economic preparation for this, of course, all the dances around the, the hydrocarbons. And yes. so the fact that, you know, people who are conscripted, they came from far off regions, you know, from, from Tuval, from, from Yakutia, from, um, you know, those areas in, in, in the far East and not, not necessarily from Moscow, St. Petersburg, right. where usually are decided in the streets. Um, so in the history, in Russian history. And so, uh, this was always a tricky, tricky moment. So this is called partial mobilization. You know, in the US, we know exactly what a mobilization will mean, right? Because we have 1.2 million active duty between 700,000 and a million reservists that you can bring on. And then we have the veterans. Veterans are like 17 million people of which yeah. one fourth are below 50. So, you know, another 4 million people that could be called in if need be. So it's very clear what the numbers are, and they're staggering, right? Compared to say China, which is just not, you know, didn't didn't have major wars since losing to Vietnam in 1979. Whereas if we are to draw one advantage from the quixotic neoconservative ideas to wage wars in the Middle East for 20 years, is that there are a lot of people with experience in this country who can fight. Well, where are these people in Russia? What did they do? You know, was it the Georgia War? When they were found, you know, on tanks going in in, in sneakers, is that is that the, the operation? And where are those thousands? So three hundred thousand, we have to see it. My my actually suspicion is that these will be fresh recruits that will have to be trained. They have to be trained over a long period of time. In this case, Russia really has to bank on this unity in the West as the energy cap is being turned off. And let's see how well Europe survives the winter and depends on weather and a lot of a lot of other things. So so that mass mobilization uh, called for by nationalists such as um, Stierko, for example, the famous um, war criminal who um, for a while uh, commanded the forces in, in Donetsk region eight years ago. So he called for for mass mobilization. He he actually dubbed the 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 the, the debacle in Kharkiv as the second Mukden. So Mukden was a very famous battle. There's a couple of those battles that Russia lost historically. In the 20th century, there were two of those. One was Mukden in the war against Japan in 1905, which triggered the 1905 revolution, but also led to Russia's you know, reduced profile in the Far East for 40 years. So until Stalin invaded Manjuria, already after the nuclear um, uh, bombs dropped by, uh, by the U.S., um, so Mukden is one, and the Battle of Warsaw is another one in 1920, I think, where the Soviets um, were trying to override Poland and get as far as, as, as Germany, which was a communist um, revolution. Um, uh, Poland won this battle. Uh, Bolsheviks didn't matter to, to enter the West, and they had to wait another 25 years to enter Berlin, right? Um, so these were those two very, very significant, significant defeats, and Strickel believes that Kharkiv is another one of that, of that sort. Um, so the mobilization. The third issue is seeking support. So we have this Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting. I said last week that India would be 
only present through you know ministerial level. That was not true. Um, Prime Minister Modi went. Why did he go? He went because Xi Jinping offered to pull away the troops in the Himalaya uh, away from LAC, so line of actual control. Um, sort of, you know, convincing Modi that he should go. He did, as I said, they didn't meet on a bilateral basis. Um, you know, the cheerleader. Oh, in- I want to jump in for here for one second. Is there a is it meaningful that they did meet on a bilateral? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's meaningful. Home you meet. So he met with the president of Uzbekistan. He met with Erdogan. He met with Putin about which in a moment, uh, but not with. Xi, I think he met with Raisi of Iran as well, um, but not with not with Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping met with Putin, of course. Um, but the Modi's trip was really interesting because you know India sort of trying to play both sides in, in, in a way like Turkey. And as the world is very welcoming for India's rise, unlike China's rise, um, I think India is beginning to squander that capital uh, by its participation in BRICS, by its participation in SCO, and by its participation in those recent military exercises, Vostok 22, with Russia and China, which were very much anti-Japanese, right? So Japan is the number one ally that India has, uh, not really, you know, dirt, affected by any colonial history between the two countries, unlike, say, the UK. And so um, this is th- th- this was sufficiently important. Japan criticized India for participating in Vostok 22, um, and after which India decided, okay, we're not going to participate in the na- naval exercises, but just in, in the Russian part of Manjuria, um, uh, the, the, the land troops. And an official from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Japan said, well, how would India feel if Japan participated in military exercises with Pakistan? Hmm. And we would only decide not to participate in the fight in Kashmir. Right? So a little bit of a wake-up call for India. And I, I'm beginning to see some nervousness that, you know, U.S. is also losing patience. Jai Shankar, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, is in New York right now for the U.N. meeting. He's going to spend many hours with Blinken and Austin. Um, and But he also is going to go to a BRICS meeting, right? But also a Quad meeting. So we'll see about that. The important thing that Modi did on the back of that pressure from Japan, he said to Putin, this is not the time for war. And Putin, in his two meetings, both with Modi and with Erdogan, said the war will soon be over. After which he went back to Moscow, and we know what what he did, right? So always, you know, this is like those bifurcated tongues of of any any snake you wouldn't like to be bitten by. But I think the most important was, of course, the meeting with Xi Jinping, which gave nothing verbal. So there, it felt like Putin had to actually ex- explicate himself, explain himself for the disasters of the war. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we can speculate, the big boss telling him, dude, you told me it's going to be this three three days. What's going on? Right. right. And, and, and Putin's like, you know, looking like a battered dog had to actually wean himself out of this. We don't know what really is going on behind the scenes. We suspect that there is some help from China in terms of um, the equipment because mortar shells were found by Ukrainians. Apparently from North Korea, except that uh, North Korea in 15th century, Koreans generally, King, the great King Sejong, invented Hangulu, this beautiful Korean writing, right? I mean, a lot of things happened in the early 15th century in Asia. 
Muromachi Jida in Japan, great for art, the Ming's in China, the last great Chinese, Chinese Chinese dynasty, and King Sejong in Korea. But these shells in Ukraine are written with Hanzi, the Chinese ideograms, mm. not with Hangul. Why would Korea provide something with Hanzi, with Chinese characters? Big question. So we don't know, right? We don't know. I think the U.S. intelligence is looking at this right now in, in, in Ukraine. Um, and so, so that's the, you know, so that's the, the, the outcome. The outcome was at least on surface, much less juicy than Lee jong shus statement in Moscow a week ago, about which we, we, we recently spoke. Right. So number three, uh, he provided a very strong verbal support for, uh, for Russia. So it leaves us with the fourth element of Russian strategy, and that's WMDs. Because in this statement this morning, we have again, the story of the you know, sacred Russian territory. So let's assume that the, the, the territories of Kherson, Donetsk, Luhansk, at least the partial areas which are occupied by Russia, vote overwhelmingly 105% in favor of being with Mother Russia. You know, because it's so easy to organize referendums under, under the bombs and the missiles, right? So you just do it in three days and it's going to be all ready. Um, so what happens then? Then it's a Russian territory that gives, in theory, Russia to use weapons of mass destruction to defend at all costs its territory. My bet would be that chemical weapons go first. There's a lot of experience from Syria here, hundreds of attacks by Russian allies using chemical weapons. And it actually brings us to the nuclear issue. And I think one reason why Euro collapsed this morning after that, that speech, why there's so much nervousness about the, the, the situation in the markets is because the nuclear issue is coming back. Yeah. There's, a yeah. Polish, there's a Polish think tank um, which believes that it's not in Russian interest to use the nukes uh, as a counterforce. Counterforce meaning to attack tactically the Ukrainian troops, because Ukrainian troops are so dispersed, it's 700,000 people. Zelensky speaks about a million. And, you know, it's a very long uh, yeah. front line, right? So, so it's difficult to pinpoint, you know, where the area is. And so um, that Polish think tank believes that countervalue act of mass murder could happen. Countervalue meaning trying to break the... Um, the result of Ukrainians by attacking cities. So more or less what the United States infamously did against Japan uh, in 1945. And I, I've been to both cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and especially Nagasaki. You know, it's a, it's, a, it, it's a taboo to speak about it in the United States, but the original target of that bomb was Mitsubishi Zosin, so Mitsubishi shipyard. And this is, a, this is a port city to a lot of coves and bays. And this is one of the bays pretty far away from the city itself. But it was a cloudy day. And they continued and moved over the city and dropped the bomb over Catholic churches. Yeah. Catholic churches, the only Catholic city in, in, in Japan, making very unique. And so you see, for example, one of the turrets of, of an old neo-Gothic church was thrown like a kilometer away from where it stood with, you know, praying women and children inside. Um, decimated, pulverized, whatever, right? So counter value would be, according to Thinktons, the last chance, Putin's chance, to actually break Ukraine, destroy the Nazi regime there, and finally defend little Russia, as they call it, Mawodosia, 
which of course will in a couple of days in a sham referendum claim to be defended. Yes. yes. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot going on. <laughs> so you have any predictions for what we see over the next couple of days? We now on our next show. Well, one thing good about authoritarian regimes that uh, referendum predictions are pretty easy. Let me guess what's going to happen. Is Will it be 98% or 100%? <laughs> well, because of the difficulty to organize it and, you know, physically, it probably is going to be by internet. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very funny because several years, you know, I, I'm a Swiss citizen. I have to uh, vote several times a year in, in a referendum. And until a couple of years ago, until the 2016 U.S. election, until Brexit, um, it was possible to do it online. You know, with with quirks, like, so you need the special codes and so on. No, back to, you know, 19th century. You put uh, physically something into the envelope, you send it to Switzerland, and let's see yeah. if someone catches this in flight, trouble, but a little safer than internet. So I don't yeah. hold my breath for the outcome of the referendums. Yeah. Well, um, it's been a heck of a, it's only Wednesday. It's been a heck of a week. And the end of last week was pretty devastating as well. Anna says, nuclear would affect other countries. Will they respond? And do you want to answer her too? One yeah, you think there's again, again, total speculation. I think Biden in the same interview uh, said that he would respond. We don't have, we as NATO, we don't have tactical nukes. I mean, nukes, yes, but not means to project them. Because, you know, we disarmed after the Cold War. So Russia's uh, conventional inferiority, about which there are no two ways about it, right? Obviously, they're inferior, is offset by this tactical uh, superiority. So probably the response wouldn't be um, uh, nuclear. But it will be very easy, for example, to completely obliterate the Black Sea Fleet, right? Mm -hmm. It would take like uh, two seconds to do this. Um, so yes, there would be some response. Erdogan came out very strongly after the Samarkand meeting saying um, the war should over, be over and all the lands occupied by Russia should go back to Ukraine, including Crimea. He, he repeated this at PBS, I think, yesterday because uh, he's here. Um, very interesting. I don't think Turkey wants this. I don't think China wants this. I don't think Iran wants this. So in a way... It subverts a lot of diplomatic effort of you know the last 210 days of the war to to, to for Russia to to bring over some real players, not just North Korea, but some real players. Yeah. Uh, just as Central Asia is peeling off, and this was really visible at this meeting and beyond. Um, yeah. So you know we come back to this because running out of time, but you know USSR is burning at the at the edges and and there is a lot to to say about it and about the incapacity of Russia to do anything about in its own backyards when it has its own organization CSTO um that shows how weak it is how weak the country is and weakness is not attractive not for those players i mentioned so um that using this against the you know a, especially counter value against the population uh would ostracize Russia beyond the West. Yeah. All right. Let's leave it there for today. I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about tomorrow. 
let me hit on a couple of points before I let everybody go. Thank you for being here, Thomas. And thank you, everybody, for joining us.